O come thou rod of Jesse free thine own from Satan's tyranny. From depths of hell thy people save and give them victory over the grave. O come thou key of David, come and open wide our heavenly home and make safe the way that leads on high and close the path of misery. Beautiful lines from O Come, O Come, Emmanuel, this Advent hymn we just sang the chorus of a few minutes ago. But I want you to notice that the key identity of this one who will vanquish the powers of darkness and open the path to shalom and close the path to misery is called the rod of Jesse and the key of David. You need to know the Bible somewhat well to understand this powerful messianic imagery of the one that Christians around the world, around Christmas time especially, and throughout the centuries have remembered to understand what it means to say he's the rod of Jesse and the key of David requires an understanding of a promise God made thousands of years ago. About 4,000 years ago, he made a promise to Abraham. At the beginning of creation, God made a promise to Adam and Eve that he would send a seed of the woman who would come. And he would crush the head of the serpent. And he would give us freedom from the sinful dilemma we had just gotten ourselves into. And so we are in the midst of this series, Child of Promise, remembering that Jesus is the one that we desperately need and the one that God promised he would send because of our desperate need. And we've had this brief Advent series that looks at Jesus as the one promised to Adam, and then Jesus as the one promised to Abraham, and then Jesus to the one promised to, to um, last week, Moses. And then this morning, it's, it's Jesus as the one promised to King David. As we have this progression of the promise given by God and fulfilled every time God says it would be fulfilled. He made these promises to individuals, but as representatives of promises to his people, and he's kept his promise every single time. The promise to Adam that the seed of the woman would come and be the snake crusher, and to Abraham that he would be his God and his people would be his people, and all the nations of the earth would be blessed through him. The promise that he made to Moses that there would be a prophet like him who would come. A prophet like Moses who would fulfill all the prophetic voice before him as the prophet of God. And he would be the one to fulfill the law that Moses came off the mountain with. And he makes this promise as we see this morning to King David. That there would be a king on a throne forever. And I hope you realize that this series is about Jesus coming, but the character of God is on display as well in his faithfulness. To say God is faithful means that God will do all that he has said and fulfill all that he has promised. God keeps his promises, and oh, do we need to hear that message. In a day where we just know that politicians aren't going to do what they say, and neither are contractors, 
If you've ever had any work done on your house. Now, there are a few rare Christian contractors who actually do what they say they will in the time they will for the cost they, they say it will take. But sadly, we also have husbands and wives who don't keep their promises. We have fathers who don't keep their promises to raise their children the way they say they will. We have religious leaders who tragically don't keep their promises to love the people of God without selfish interest and dishonesty. We have lots of examples of faithlessness, of promise breaking. I am confident that there's not one of us who hasn't felt the tragedy and the brokenness that broken promises and unfaithfulness has brought into our lives very acutely and very personally. The ravages of unfaithfulness and promise breaking is everywhere we turn. And so when we say that God is faithful, that is indeed good news. That we're desperate to hear and God is faithful. The child of the promise is a fulfillment of God's faithfulness, but also this beautiful description of him, this Hebrew word, there's really no English equivalent for chesed, which we need to grab a bunch of English words and say steadfast, faithful, committed love. That's what's true of God. He keeps his promises, not just for any old thing, but to love us with a pursuing love, with a faithful love, with a relentless love that isn't deterred by our unfaithfulness. It's a strong and gracious and pursuing and all-knowing love. He doesn't commit to love us and then find out who we really are and quit. Isn't that good news? You know, I, I don't know if you ever have a sneaking suspicion that if people really knew who you are, they wouldn't love you anymore. And sometimes, sadly, that's true of people. But it's not true of God because his faithfulness is completely informed by his complete knowledge. And his faithfulness is completely informed by his complete power. I often want to love and sometimes I lack the knowledge of how to do that well. It's quite often I will, I will want to love, and I even know how to do it. I just don't have the power and the resources to do it. That's never true of God. I can want to love, have the knowledge and the power to do it, and I don't have the wisdom to actually do it well. And so I end up loving stupidly. <laughs> Can anybody relate to that? Oh, that didn't work. I've tried to love people well at times, and it just blows up and makes things worse, and I need to say, I've got to think of a different way to say that. And God never regrets or takes back the way he loves because it's completely informed by his perfect knowledge and his complete power and his goodness and faithfulness and everything else that's true of him. And so in an age where there's so much cause to lack trust. There is. It makes perfect sense that we're skeptical and even cynical on a human level. But what we need to hear this morning is Randy's main point from last week. God can be trusted. God can be trusted. 
And it's because over and over again, for millennia, for all of human history, we've seen God keep his promises to Adam and Abraham, to Moses, and now this morning to David. There are key passages I want you to understand this morning that help us understand this. You must know, so ministry value number three at Grace is about our preaching. And it says that our preaching is primarily expositional out of a text, in other words, drawn out of a text, but theologically instructive. And one, one of the things we try to do at Grace is to help us anchor ideas in particular texts of Scripture, but in a comprehensive perspective as well that makes you realize that this isn't just an isolated idea in the Bible, just Paul's perspective or something, but it's a biblical idea so we can end up saying this is what God thinks. This is what God knows is true and that we need to see as true that informs our lives. And I, I know I can speak for all the preachers and certainly for myself that as we come to preach one of our greatest challenges in the effort to help you see that something is grounded in a passage of scripture but biblically comprehensively true as well is how, how to somehow reduce the number of passages to unload on you to just a few so we can get it in a 35 minutes. Which is why we never get it in a 35 minutes. Speaking for myself. So, I, I hope you appreciate my extreme restraint this morning to just get it to just a few passages this morning. But the first one I want to read to you is this description of God's promise to David, this incredibly important passage in the history of redemption. We're going to turn to Luke chapter 1, so you can turn there. But I want to get us to Luke 1, starting in the Old Testament so we, we get to Luke 1, this classic Christmas passage, by starting with 2 Samuel chapter 7, the Davidic covenant, the, the promise to David, this covenant God makes with David, promising that the Messiah, the anointed one who would usher in the kingdom of God as the king of kings, is here in, first, in 2 Samuel chapter 7, where it says this, when your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your father, speaking to David, his death is imminent, maybe not soon here in this passage, but it's coming, count on it. The turnover of world leaders is 100%, except for Jesus. He says this, I will raise up your offspring after you, who shall come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom." He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. When he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with the rod of men, with the stripes of the sons of men, but my steadfast love will not depart from him and the branch from his roots shall bear fruit. Now what's going on here is a prophetic passage. And like every prophetic passage, there's an application to the immediate history of Israel on a human level. But there's an ultimate fulfillment of this in God's design in redemptive history. So the offspring from his, his body will be these kings that will be on the throne, these representatives of God, which is what David was as a king. 
and they will be human kings and they will have iniquity that will have to be dealt with by God but there's coming a king who won't have iniquity of himself oh he will have the iniquity of his people put on his account and where he's considered a sinner and accursed he doesn't have any of his own sin we find out but this one here is promised Assuring us that there will never fail to be a lineage from the tribe of David, from the line of David, until the seed of the woman promised to Adam finally comes in the Messiah, Jesus. He'll establish his kingdom. He'll make a house for the name of God. And he'll be a father to him, and he will be his son. And then we fast forward to the prophetic literature and we see in Jeremiah 23, 5, these words, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will raise up for David a righteous branch. And he shall reign as king and deal wisely and shall execute justice and righteousness in the land. In his days, Judah will be saved and Israel will dwell securely. And this is the name by which he will be called. The Lord is our righteousness. The promise to David picked up by Jeremiah the prophet. And then in our classic Christmas passage, we now have the background to understand what God is saying to Mary through the angel. Look at verse 31 of Luke chapter 1. Look what it says. And you, Mary will conceive in your womb and bear a son. And you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David. And he will reign over all the house of Jacob forever. And of his kingdom there will be no end. And Mary said to the angel, how will this be? Great question, Mary, since I'm a virgin. And the angel answered her, the Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called holy. And so when the Apostle Paul, now we move from the Gospels to the, 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 the letters of the New Testament. You see, we've got the historical books teaching us this idea. We've got the prophetic books teaching us this idea. We've got the Gospels teaching us this idea. We've got now the epistles teaching this idea. Listen to Paul's description right in the beginning of the book of Romans of Jesus. Romans 1. One through four, Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand. See, this isn't something new Paul's concocted. No, this is a very, very old promise that's now come true in Jesus. The prophets of the Holy Scriptures told us this concerning his son who was descended from David. There it is. According to the flesh. So his human nature, his human identity traces all the way back to David. King David, but then listen to this, and was declared to be the son of God with power according to the spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord. So according to his human nature, he's a descendant of David, but according to his divine nature, as we saw in the other passages, he's the son of God, and his resurrection validates this. And then finally, the last book of the Bible, 
Just five passages to lay our foundation biblically this morning. Revelation twenty two sixteen, Jesus waves his banner over all of human history and says this, I am the root and descendant of David, the bright morning star. Is that beautiful? Another image of the Messiah in O Come, O Come, Emmanuel. O come, thou day spring, come and cheer our spirits by thine advent here. And so what we find here is, as, as one commentator says, is that God broke into the universe not as a generic human being, but as a Jew. In fulfillment of 2,000 years of covenant promises so that Israel would glorify God for his truthfulness and all the nations would glorify God for his mercy. He came as the son of David and the son of God, a Jew to validate every promise and a man to identify with every nation. So he's the king. He's the king of kings. He's the Lord of lords. He's the one who rules and reigns as a royal king. Now, who in here was not raised in an American context, the United States? All right, yes. We have India too. Okay, so just bear with me while I speak to the rest of us. You, I think, three I saw. Uh, Where were you raised? Colombia, okay. And India, yes. So, was anyone was anyone in here raised under a king? Drake Dracot's here or queen? Okay, so no one here was raised in a country that had a king or a queen. Is this true? Isn't that wild? Oh, most of human history has this idea of a king, and there are kingdoms still today. And we look at Saudi Arabia, and they have a king, and not a very good one, in my opinion. And I say, man, I'm glad we have a democracy and not a, a royal idea that you somehow inherit simply that you're the son of the king or the queen and now you get to be the, uh, or the daughter of the king or the queen and now you get to be the king or the queen. Like, Char- what did Charles do to earn that job he just got? I dare say he wouldn't have been voted in. And if, if you raise an American context especially, you have a built-in aversion to kings, to royalty. I mean, we started this whole thing here, this country we call the United States of America. And what was the main thing? Get rid of old George. He's out of here, right? This king idea is a really bad idea. Let's go with the democracy idea. You know, England has kings and queens, but they don't actually have any real authority. It's just symbolic, and that's why they run basically kind of like we do almost. But, but we don't like this king idea, and for good reason, in my opinion. Do you really want to entrust all that power to one dude or woman just because he or she might have been born first in this family? You know, power corrupts and absolute power corrupts. You know, we think that, absolutely, we think that a democracy is better because people are so good and they deserve a vote. And there's actually some truth to that, but I think the greater reason democracy is better is because we know that no individual should ever be entrusted with all that power. Right? We get that. Listen to actually what C.S. Lewis says about this very idea. It's brilliant. 
A great deal of democratic enthusiasm descends from the ideas of people like Rousseau who believed in democracy because they thought mankind was so wise and good and that everyone deserved a share in government. I find, Lewis says, they're not true without looking further than myself. I don't deserve a share in governing a hen roost. Is that great? Much less a nation. <laughs> the real reason for democracy is mankind is so fallen that no man can be trusted with unchecked power over his fellows. Aristotle said that some people were only fit to be slaves. I do not contradict him. But I reject slavery because I see no men fit to be masters. Right? Is that great? But imagine, just imagine though, if there were a king who could be trusted. Imagine if there were a man who was so good and so loving and so wise and so knowledgeable and so benevolently powerful that he could be trusted. So good that if you don't trust him, you're doomed. That you need him desperately. Is that amazing? And Jesus is this king. He doesn't have limited wisdom. He doesn't have limited power. He doesn't have limited goodness. He has unlimited love for his subjects. Then this monarchy would be the best possible government. And if you could ever think of such a ruler rising in this world with no weaknesses, no folly, no sin, but a wise and humble person who would rule and reign with glorious love and grace and truth and justice and might will bring it on then, right? Bring it on. That'd be way better than a bunch of fallen people voting and just deciding what the majority thinks. Because the majority gets it wrong a lot. But Jesus is the one we need. And I just want to point out in our passage, Luke 1, four words about this Jesus. Look at these four words we see about him in Luke 1, 31 through 35. The first one is Jesus. <laughs> you shall give him the name Jesus, Yeshua. Why? Well, because he's the one who will save his people from their sins because Yeshua means one who saves. This king is not only the one who rules and reigns, he's the one who saves us from ourselves and our sin and his own righteous judgment over us and his righteous wrath that would condemn us but because his wrath and grace are two sides of the same coin, he saves us and satisfies his wrath in the Savior Jesus. He is the king, and he's the savior as well. The second word is the word son. He's the son of God. He comes not just with a human ability to sympathize with our weaknesses and truly represents us. He comes with a divine power to truly be able to save us. You know, if I were dying, as someone under grave danger, I think Moyer Hubbard would be willing to to save me even if it cost him his life but that's right but if he in the effort said and not only i'm going to save your life i'm going to die for you so your sins are be forgiven i would say moyer 
thanks for the effort, but don't bother. (laughs) It will not be effective. But Jesus not only has that self-sacrificial love to save my life, but he's got divine power to actually atone for the sins of the world. So he's the Savior. He's the Son of God who comes in power as the Father's beloved Son. And when I trust him in faith, when you trust him in faith, we are declared loved in the Son. So he's Jesus. And notice it also says that he's the Holy One in verse 35. He's the Holy One of God. Look look what it says. It's just beautiful. He, He is the one... In verse 35, who the Holy Spirit will come upon Mary and the power of the Most High will overshadow her and he will be called Holy, the Son of God. He's holy. He's he's distinct from all creation. He's not just mired in the midst of it, but he lords over it as the king and creator we find in the New Testament. He's the creator of all of this. He's the Holy One. He's absolutely excellent and distinct from everything in creation. And he's free from all sin. There's no sin in him. And then the last word I want you to notice is that word forever. Did you see it? He he, he will have a kingdom that is forever in verse 33. He will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And of his kingdom there will be no end. He'll always be this king we desperately need to be protected by his infinite power so no danger can ultimately destroy you. He's the king not just of the people of Israel but of all his people from every tongue and tribe and nation who's also the king of the universe. And he'll never be replaced. He's not up for election again in two years. Isn't that great news? Or four years. The election cycle that wears us out doesn't apply to him there is no election cycle because he wasn't elected and he never needs to be his kingdom is forever there are no elections for this king kings aren't elected there's no successor his kingdom is forever so i love that verse in the back of our church jesus christ is the same yesterday today and forever he's the king forever and so the salvation he brings is forever the status he brings as his subjects and we become co-heirs with the king is ours forever. He doesn't change his mind tomorrow. I heard one guy put it this way. There's an amnesty for all your sin and all your failures. There's an amnesty available for all of us who rejected Jesus as our king, which is all of us. There's amnesty available this morning. You can be set free no matter what you've done, no matter what you bring here today, no matter what baggage or damage you've created. You can have amnesty. You can have freedom from all of it. And before he sat down at the right hand of God, he died for us. He paid our penalty as our Savior so that we won't perish and we'll have eternal life. He died for rebels. He offers forgiveness, and he's a king. And those who trust him in saving faith find salvation from a king who lives forever, who's the king of kings and lord of lords.
So Jesus is the king, and we need to develop a really positive, wonderful view of Jesus as our Lord and King. We're rebels at heart. Jesus, Kenny quoted Calvin this morning, that our hearts are idol factories. We don't worship our king. We worship all these little cheap imitations of him. And it may be even sort of morally neutral things that are, are idols, but when they become something we give allegiance to greater than God, it becomes a sinful thing. I was actually so glad when I saw that it was highly likely that the World Cup final would be over before church started. <laughs> it wasn't, oh, sorry. Well, well, then we have another, it'll definitely be over by second service. So every, everybody should get here, even though this morning was the World Cup, right? I'm not going to give away who won it if you have it on record or whatever. But, but, but it's amazing to me, that, and I'm not sort of saying if somebody stays home today and watches the World Cup that they're horrible pagans. But, but it's amazing how, how easily our hearts can be pulled away by even sort of fine things that could even be gifts of God. Even, even a husband or a wife or children or anything can pull us away from God. But Jesus is our king. And that means he's, he's our boss. You know, I, I talked to somebody a couple weeks ago, great, great guy, love him. He, he, he's just a wonderful guy, he's not, he's not part of grace. But he just said to me, you know, I, there's this teaching in the Bible and I, I just can't get around it, it's obviously there. But I don't like it and, I, and I'm not sure how I can actually live it out because I just don't like this teaching. And I said, can we back up to it's in the Bible and just pause there before we get to working it out in a way that's, you know, cool with you? Can we just get to the authority of the Bible because it's the word of God and God is your king? Jesus' word is the word. Man, it's amazing how quickly we get. Why do you want to get around it if it's in his word? Sometimes I just think the authority of the word of the king is the bottom line in our lives. We can overcomplicate it and psychologize it and, and confuse it, but bottom line so often in my life is, do I want to say yes, sir, to Jesus? Because I trust him. And I'm so thankful. I was never in the military, but, but I did play sports for the, the massive parts of my life. And man, when I, when I grew up, you did what the coach said. You like run through fire, right? When do we learn that sort of submission anymore? When, when do we learn that this is, this is just how it is? I remember I coached with an amazing guy from northern Indiana, J.R. Bishop. I had no idea how southern Indiana can be. J.R. was from Indiana, right? There's, there are portions of Indiana that are more southern than you can imagine, but he had this drawl, and like, he didn't allow earrings on, on, on the team. <laughs> and there was a freshman who came in, and he had an earring, <clears throat> and J.R. called the captain in, and he said, hey, hey, Bart, did you notice this freshman has an earring? He said, yeah, and he said, well, have you talked to him about the team policy, Bart? And he said, no, I haven't. He said, why not, Bart? You're the captain. And he said, okay, coach, I'll do that. Next day, this freshman comes down, a good player, 
comes down and he's got this hole in his ear. The earring's gone, but he's mad. He says, Coach, can you show me where in the Bible it says I can't have an earring? And JR says, Well, no, I can't. I just don't like it. And because I'm the head coach. That's the only reason I need. <laughs> it's just beautiful, right? Now, now, I love that illustration because you know what? There's authority there. Now, the, sh- the authority falls way short because God never commands anything that isn't in his word, right? Head coaches of football teams get to have opinions that are how it is because you got to make lots of judgment calls about a lot of things. But with God, his word, his authority always go together. So you can't say Jesus is your king if his word isn't your law. And there are going to be times where you don't like his law. You don't like his word. You wish it were different. If you were God, you wouldn't have that. You'd do it differently. But man, I, I just want to speak right into this attitude that says, you know, I can't get around it in the Bible, but I don't know how I'm going to actually do this because I just, I don't like it. We, we've got to recognize if Jesus is king, he's not just your savior. The reason he's able to be your savior because he's also king over everything. And I know submission is a word we, we like. Let's talk about another American problem. Every time I see the bumper sticker, question authority, I think, as if we need encouragement. <laughs> I guess there are a couple people I know who might need a question authority more, but not most of us. Right? We all think we know better than every authority we've ever had. Right? I mean, it's American to complain about your boss. That's just what we do. Right? And so we've got to be people who understand authority and realize that the authority Jesus has, this kingly ministry of Jesus, means he rules over everything. How about this? He doesn't just rule over my life, your life. He rules over everything. He upholds the created universe. He's before all things, and in him all things hold together. That verse is over the science building at Wheaton College when you walk into the entrance. That's a pretty good verse to look at on your way to study physics. Jesus rules over everything. He's the creator. He rules over nature. Jesus rules over his people. We're his people, and our job is to make disciples among his people we, we go out and we want people to recognize that Jesus is the king of over everything. He's not some just local deity. He's the king of kings and lord of lords and the creator of the universe. He rules over everything. He rules over his people. He rules over all people. There's coming a day when every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus is lord to the glory of God the Father. He is the king of kings and lord of lords. Listen to this. You've never seen anything in your life that God did not create. Is that great? All Satan can do is pervert things. And Christ is intimately involved in upholding the existence of everything. Everything you see right now, everything in your field of vision all the time is created by and upheld by Jesus. And we find out that not only did he make it, and he's not only sustaining it, it's made for one supreme reason. It's to him and for him. It's unto Christ. 
And so he rules over all of us. He rules over all nature and creation. He rules over cancer cells. One day he will vanquish all sin and evil and destruction once and for all. You can count on it. He rules over this sinful world. And sometimes it seems out of control, but it isn't because he's ruling and reigning and advancing his kingdom. Jesus is the king. And what does he do as king? Well, he rules. He defends, he protects, and he shepherds his people. Beautiful combination of identities of Jesus as our king. And our job as God's people is to recognize him as king. Jesus comes into the synagogue and he reads the scroll of the prophet Isaiah that quotes this messianic prophecy and says the spirit of the lord is upon me because he's anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor he sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind and set at liberty those who are oppressed and proclaim the year of the lord's favor he rolls up the scroll gives it back to the attendant sits down in the synagogue and what does he say today the scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing i'm the king and i'm ushering in my kingdom that's what he's saying. He's saying, I'm, I'm bringing my kingdom into this world. That's what he does. That's who he is. And one day he will judge the world once and for all. Because he's the king, so he's the rightful judge. The living and the dead. That's what he does until the last enemy is to be destroyed, which is the enemy of death. At the end, we will all have to deal with what we're going to do with death. And Jesus brings delivery from our greatest enemies. Destroying every rule and authority and he must reign until he puts all enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. God has put all things in subjection under his feet but when it says all things are put in subjection it is plain. He is accepted who put all things in subjection under him. When all things are subjected to him, when the Son himself also will be subjected to him who put all things under subjection to him, that God may be all in all. That's where his kingdom is heading. He's going to judge the earth. Now, now Jesus is the king. I hope you've gotten that. If you want salvation, if you want forgiveness of sins, you've got to go to the king for that. If, if you want freedom from fear in life, if you want hope, if you want all the stuff we all want, you've got to go to the king. And if you never have gone to this king in humble submission and trusting faith, I plead with you to make this morning that morning where you do that. And then you can be part of his kingdom's advance. And for those of us who are part of his kingdom's advance, I want you to realize how awesome it is to not just be a subject in his kingdom, but ministers in his kingdom. We're made a kingdom of priests. We actually represent the king as ambassadors and instruments of his kingdom's advance. How thrilling is that? You want a life that's meaningful? You want a life that adds up to something more than 80 years and a pension and a golf club membership? Live your life under the authority of your king, depending on him, and then your life becomes something that has an impact in eternity. Yeah, even with all our mess, even with all our baggage, that's who we are. So what does it mean to represent the king? My favorite rapper is a guy named Shy Lin, and he's part of a hip-hop collective called 116. And, and this is their motto. Is that great? I absolutely love that motto. Rep the king. That's what we do as Christians. We rep the king. We represent the king in our lives. 
And what does this mean then? What does this look like? Well, every area of life is under his authority. And so every part of our lives is under his authority. Not just when we gather in church or have our morning devotions, but all of life now. You've heard the Protestant work ethic. It doesn't just mean Protestants worked hard all the time and were worn out by it and needed to find some boundaries. What that means is they viewed everything as the work of the Lord. Uh, Luther said the milkmaid is, is doing the work of the Lord to the glory of God. And so it's all under his authority. So let me just take a few examples. We could talk about this all week, and maybe we should. And your grace groups at least do that. But, but, but look, how do we rep the king? Well, in the way we live. We represent the, the king's priorities and principles. He's told you, O oh man, what is good. And what does he require of you? To, to do justice and love kindness and walk humbly with your God. So lives walking humbly with our king leads to actual realities of not just humility, but living for justice and pursuing justice in our world. And loving kindness. These are priorities of our king and of his kingdom's advance. And so that's how we live. You know, I think one of the biggest problems with the social justice movement that we see is Christians who are afraid that we're going to lose the gospel so they don't care about justice and living humbly and kindly, but also Christians who are so concerned with the ethical ramifications of this that they don't ground it in the saving lordship of Jesus in the gospel. But when we've got the gospel in place, our lives need to evidence justice and mercy we're having a, an unborn conference in January that we're partnering with with the pro-life group on campus because we want to seek justice for the most vulnerable in our society. And we want to do it all the time in, in every area of our society. This is why we, we live the way we do, why we vote the way we do, why we care the way we do, why we are concerned about realities in our world the way we are. We pray as subjects of the kingdom seeking to rep the king. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Hear that? So we're not just praying for the details of our lives that we get over this sickness or that we, we do, but that everything in our lives is seen as part of God's kingdom advance through our lives. That we want to see his kingdom even before it comes completely being worked out now in our lives. We want it to be on earth that is it in heaven, not just when the king comes back, but now as a foretaste of what his kingdom will look like when it's established completely. So we pray that way. We fight the powers of darkness representing our king. We, we seek to be used by God as ministers, as agents of kingdom realities. We care for the least of these as representatives of the king. That's why we look after orphans and widows in their affliction and keep ourselves unstained from the world. Project Hope is not just a do-gooder ministry just concerned about social issues. This desire to care for orphans in our midst, to care for widows and orphans, to care for the poor, to have food bank on Fridays is because we're called to show the compassion of our king. Because we're shown, called to have a self-sacrificial love for other people because that's what our king is like and that's what his kingdom is like. And so we care for the least of these. The reason we don't take vengeance is because we're so confident God will one day. 
Our king is coming back and he's going to judge the world. So we don't need to take vengeance. We can be so radically different than this road rage culture. People have lost their minds. I, I accident, I was going somewhere last night. I accidentally got in the wrong lane and then I signaled and kind of pulled back in front of this guy. Man, I'm glad there wasn't a red light up there. I think he would have come after me. We're just angry people, man. We, we, we want vengeance now, and that's why these vengeance movies like Taken. I mean, they're actors who've made their whole careers on just our longing for vengeance, right? And there's something right about that. There's something good about that. But Christians can be peacemakers, not taking vengeance, demanding it because we're so confident God's going to make everything right one day. People think if you believe in a God who's a judge, you're going to be a violent, vengeful people. It's just the opposite. We can trust our king with that because he'll do all things well and wisely. We combat sin in our lives, not just for moral reasons and health reasons, but because we want to represent the king in our purity, in our, in our holiness, in our lives. We, we have the ability to overcome the powers of darkness in our lives. We have authority over the powers of darkness because our king has conferred his authority to us. And so we go to war with sin in our lives, not just for moral purity, but to represent our king. And there are so many passages I could talk about in this, but the quest for holiness in our lives has to be grounded in our desire to look like, live like, and represent our king and be employable in his service out of that purity. Because we're going to reign with him one day. And so we need to hold fast to him and his ways. And finally, we worship Jesus now like we will for eternity. See, we're the ones who realize Jesus is king. He's not just a nice guy. He's not just a baby in a manger. He's not just the guy who said, consider the lilies. He's the king. He's the king. And one day, this is going to be what happens. Jesus is going to be declared worthy to take the scroll and open its seals. Why? Because he was slain. And by his blood, he ransomed us for God from every tribe, language, people, and nation. And he's made us a kingdom and priests to our God. And we will reign on the earth. Did you hear that? We're not just subjects. We're we're co-regents in the sense that we get invited in to be co-heirs with God. Christ the King and the Son and we reign with him one day and so we're the worshipers who are advancing his work in this world the famous quotation from a famous theologian is this there's not a square inch in the whole domain of our human existence over which Christ who is sovereign over all does not cry mine it's all his it's all his and our lives need to be filled with seeing everything is his And our ministries at the core are helping people understand it's all his. Everything they are, everything they have, there's not self-determination. We don't just get to decide who we are, what we are, and what a meaningful life for us means. The king does. Radical autonomy, self-determination is the thing of our day. And the king comes in and he says, no, it's all mine. Everything you have, everything you are, it's mine. And trust me, that's how you want it. That's how you want it. Not just your religious life, 
Not just your moral life. Not just your church life or your private devotions. But all of it. All of it. Jesus is the source of it all. He's the destination of it all. He indeed is the King of kings and Lord of lords. And we get to represent the King every day of our lives. How good is that? Let's pray. Lord, help us. Thank you that you have kept your promise every time. You fulfilled what you've said you'll do every single time. To Adam, to Abraham, to Moses, and now to David, and to us, through those promises kept to them. You're keeping your promises to us. And we know, based on your track record, we can trust you today with whatever you have on our plates, whatever it is, if it's glorious, joyful, fun, exciting things, whether it's difficult and tragic and brutal and hard things. You're the king over it all. And we can trust you because we know you're everything we need you to be as our king. You're the only king, including King David, who who can actually be trusted. David failed miserably. You never did and never will. And so we trust you with our lives. We trust you with every challenge. We trust you with every sin. We trust you with every evil in this world. We trust you with disease and failure and fear and anxiety. We trust you with depression. We trust you with sin in our past that haunts us. We trust you with the challenges of today, the challenges of yesterday, and the challenges of tomorrow. And we pray that you'd help us to faithfully represent you in the midst of it all, because it's all yours. And we pray this in the name of King Jesus. Amen.